This is the Church Planting Podcast, brought to you by the Broadcast Network. Broadcast exists to support, train and encourage church planters. For more information about who we are or about the training that we offer, please visit our website at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org. Hello and welcome to episode 84 of the Broadcast Church Planting Podcast. We recently had a broadcast hangout with Andy McCulloch, where Andy was talking about how we can build cross-cultural teams. And in this episode of the podcast, we're bringing you the recording of that broadcast. You can find the full notes on everything that Andy had to say at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org slash episode 84. So here is Andy McCulloch. Good evening, everyone. Um, I've been asked to speak on building multicultural teams in church plants and um, it's always good to start with uh, something from the Bible and so there's one verse that I want to read from Acts chapter 13 and verse 1 and when you talk about multicultural team this is often the kind of verse that people would go to and so Acts 13 and 1 says now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger so he was a black guy Uh, Lucius of Cyrene, he was from North Africa, Cyrene, Manayan, a long friend of Herod the Tetrarch, so he would be from Palestine, and Saul, who was from Turkey, Um, and so, and Barnabas was from Cyprus, obviously, and so uh, you're in Antioch, in this kind of massive, unreached city, really, and the people have only turned up there because there are refugees, but then they've started sharing the gospel, and people have started getting saved, and then you, you end up with these other believers kind of landing in the place and you've got this really multicultural team. And obviously the important thing here is to think about the, the trajectory. So they don't just have a multicultural team because they think, oh, this is a great thing to do and we're going to build an international church in this city. Uh, the whole trajectory was to reach Antioch and make it a local indigenous church and see local Antioch guys come through into leadership. And when we're church planting, that is always the, the goal, is to see local indigenous churches planted with local leaders coming through. As a foreigner, you may be there for a short time. You may have to leave. You might get sick. You might get chased out. Uh, your time there might come to an end. And so the goal is always to have local guys come through and lead. And in Antioch, they did get there eventually. And so you see Titus coming through, you know, a kind of local pagan background uh, Antioch guy, and even coming through as a guy called Evodius, who ended up being the first local leader of the Antioch church. And so I think when you think about international team, you're not just thinking about, oh, it'd be great to have lots of diversity in our team. You're thinking about what is the trajectory? What are we trying to achieve here? And the goal of Christian mission must always be uh, to see local leaders come through, to see a local contextual expression of uh, church emerging. And that's what these guys were shooting for when we moved to the middle east to plant we had a really international team so we had some british people we had south african we had a malaysian we even had a few americans um on the team and so it's quite a multicultural mix of people um but again the goal was always to see the local guys come through local guys uh take their place in leadership in due course as they got saved with us and came through and so that's that's always got to be the goal but even in that multicultural team then Uh, what happens is you've got four significant areas of difference. And what this seminar this evening isn't going to be is kind of telling you how to do it, because the whole thing with cross-cultural, multicultural mission is that it's always different in every context, that it's not a science, uh, that no one can say, ah, here are the things that you have to do, here are all the answers, Uh, because, you know, multicultural team, depending on, which cultures are represented in your team will be very different. And depending on what your culture is and how you lead will be different as well. And so uh, what I want to raise is four questions that you should be thinking about. And everyone will land these in different ways pragmatically in their situation. So this evening is going to be a little bit more conceptual than we're used to. It's normally quite a pragmatic church planting track, this. But there are four areas of difference that we're going to talk about tonight. And the first one is power difference so when you've got different people from different cultures in your church planting team or in any team you've got to be aware that it's not a level playing field not everyone is 
thinking the same way about their power. And this is quite hard for us as kind of Westerners to think about. English culture is quite horizontal, really, quite classless. Americans have had their class genes removed completely and are very kind of, um, there's no sense of status at all, um, higher or lower. But many cultures in the world aren't like that. And if you've got, so if you've got ladies in the room, then they'll be thinking about power difference and the fact that, you know, because of a, a, a historically skewed world gender-wise, women have to kind of work harder to prove themselves than guys. If you're a guy, you don't think about that. If you're a woman, you know what I mean. Um, and it will be the same if there's uh, people from post-colonial nations on your team. So me as a British person, um, when my granddad was alive, the Brits ruled 85% of the world's territories, which is a terrifying thought. Um, and many people in the world, uh, their grandparents would have been oppressed by my grandparents. Now, as a Brit, you don't really think about history very much. You just, you know, when you say that's history, you mean it's not important. But for many people in the world, when they say that's history, it means this is who we are. It's really, really important. And so you've got to think about that, that the world is not a living playing field. There is a kind of a, a power slope from west to east. And the speaking of English and McDonald's and all this stuff is this kind of ongoing culture dump. And so guys in the room will feel that. So we've often had contexts where people from former colonial nations, like an African guy or an Indian guy, uh, you know, he might be a very anointed man of God, be a significant leader in his own context, all that kind of stuff, but somehow just take a back foot and defer um, because there's English people in the room and that's not right. That's not the way it should be. But it's it's inexcusable in the 21st century to be kind of ignorant of power differential. And so you need to be sensitive to that. You need to be aware. I don't know if that makes sense. Um there's an American pastor called Fritz Kling, and he uh, did a, a global listening tour where he went around the world and just explored how the, the, the church around the world is doing. And he wrote a book called The Meeting of the Waters. And he said one of the most important things that he observed is this thing called memory. And it has a massive impact on identity, on cultures, on nations and he said post-colonialism is the world's strongest form of memory. So just to say, if you're a white person, if you're from the West, uh, you are probably fairly blind to power because you don't realize um, what you don't have if you've always had it. And, and there can be a real sense of power differential in the room in multicultural teams. So that's number one, okay? Uh, number two, the other big area of difference that you need to think about is the whole area of language. Um, so the Bible affirms and celebrates that there are lots of different languages, and that's a good thing. Uh, at Pentecost, God came down and did that, showed that to the world. Hey, you don't have to come to Jerusalem and pray in Hebrew. I'm going to remind you that all your languages are sacred. And uh, in heaven, you know, there's going to be lots of languages. So the multiplicity and plurality of a language is a great thing. God loves it. It's diverse. It's beautiful. Uh, but also language is power. So for us uh, in our Middle Eastern context, our church planning team was meeting in English originally, but when we began to see local guys uh, come to faith and began to transition to uh, the leadership meeting being in the local language, um, what then happened was all the local guys who are natural speakers at that language suddenly the power differential changed and these guys are able to argue and debate and wrestle with language uh, issues in the team meetings really comfortably. And for those of us who were uh, who had learned that language, even if we were good at it, suddenly being in a team meeting where you're you know, debating and arguing and wrestling stuff around, even if you're good at it in a second language, it can be much harder. And if you're an English speaker, because you're listening to this, that means you understand some English, um, if, if, if you're a, a natural English speaker, then you must be aware there are other people in the room who, for them, English isn't their first language. It's harder for them in the team environment. And so one of the big questions that you do have to ask when you're saying, hey, we've got a multicultural cultural team is which language are we going to meet in? And you, you can't automatically assume that you're going to meet in English. And so power differential and language uh, differential are two 
kind of the, the more sort of technical things, more theoretical things to think about, but they're extremely important. Um, we now come to number three, which is the kind of the more obvious one in a way, uh, but still something that we've really got to wrestle with if you're trying to build a multicultural team. And that's the whole area of the fact that, that there are different cultural preferences. If it's a leadership team, there are different cultural styles of leadership. Um, if it's a business team, there are different expectations of how you approach business. And di different people expect different things, want different things out of a meeting. So let's imagine for a minute that we've got a really multicultural team that we're gathering with tonight, and there's an Italian on the team. So what, an what is important in a team for an Italian is temperature. He's, he's looking for, is this a warm team? A warm team is a good team. What does warm mean? It means we're physical, we're loud, we touch each other, we laugh, we're engaged. It's, it's, there's a sense of passion. There's a sense of, you know, many Mediterraneans will measure people by, is this a warm person or a cold person, you know? And so if you're an Italian, that's what you want. A warm team is a good team. Okay, if you're a German on the team, what you want is precision. So for, for you, an accurate team is a good team. German is a very precise technical language. You're going to, you know, if you're looking at statistics or how it's got, you know, you're going to care a lot about how those numbers fall out. The Italian, he's not going to care so much about the numbers as long as it's warm. But the German guy, he wants accuracy. Um, if you're Turkish on the team, uh, what you want is lots of opinions. For a Turk, a loud team is a good team. If you have a meeting, you get nowhere on the agenda, but everybody got to talk and everybody got to express their opinion, that's good. That's a good team. So for a Turkish guy in the room, he doesn't care about the accuracy so much, but he wants it to be loud. Let's make sure everybody talks, usually all at the same time. Yeah, and that's a good, that's a good thing because speech is for opinions. Um, if there's an agenda and you're a Turk, you, you don't want to go for the agenda point one and then point two and then point three. That doesn't make any sense to you because you think, actually, until we've talked about the whole agenda, how can we answer point one? Because that's contingent on everything else. And so you can see if you're an English person in the room, uh, you'd be quite frustrated already by the Italian guy and by the Turkish guy. For the English, the important thing in a team is task. So a productive team is a good team. If you're English, you have one of your eyes on the clock and the other eye on the agenda, and you make sure we keep to time and we keep to task. Um, you'll feel anxious if there's conflict in the room. If people are shouting and arguing, you'll feel really uncomfortable because English people don't like conflict at all. Ah, what's going on? There's supposed to be an elders meeting and they're shouting at each other, you know? Um, and for you, the worst possible sin is that we have an unproductive meeting. You know, we, we had a meeting, we, we, we shouted, it was warm, uh, everything else, but we didn't get the agenda done or we didn't produce any action points. That's terrible. What a waste of time. Ah, it's evil, you know? And so if you're English, that's a big problem for you. If you're Japanese guy on the team, for him, the most important thing is going to be courtesy in the sense that he really wants nobody in the team to lose face. So it's interesting. My dad used to say that the best result in any match is a draw because then nobody loses. Maybe my dad was Japanese. I don't know. I used to find it so annoying. What are you talking about, dad? But actually, um, if you're a Japanese guy, then for you, that's really important. The whole team has to win. Uh, the team has to move forward together. And there has to be no sense that anybody has been shamed or outdone by anybody else here. And so for you, that's going to be the, the big thing. No one losing face, that's a good meeting. Okay, if you're American and you're on the team, then for you, the most important thing is punch. An efficient team is a good team. If you're in the room, you want to get something, let's get on and do something. Let's just, I don't care what it is, but let's do it, you know? Uh, after all, time is money. We should cut to the chase uh, rather than tips at about, and we should lay it all out there and say it like it is. Uh, you might offend some of the more nuanced cultures in the room in your no-nonsense direct approach. Uh, you'll pull no punches. You know, this is a very American approach to life and team meetings. It's got to have punch. It's got to have some zing to it. Uh, if you're a Swedish guy and you're sitting in this meeting, um, then uh, for you, the most important thing is going to be consensus. Uh, a horizontal team 
is a good team. You know, my Swedish friends, they say to me, uh, our culture feel like the, the democratic police. We make sure that, that no one in the world is being too hierarchical or pulling rank on anybody else. Um, and so uh, there has to be an equitable distribution. There has to be a sense of togetherness that is flat, that is horizontal. If you're Swedish, then you really, really care about that. If anyone's being too strong a leader or too charismatic, you might find that a little bit offensive. And finally, in this kind of team scenario, if there was an Australian in the room, um, then for you, uh, humor is one of the highest values and a relaxed team is a good team. So yeah, we could get some stuff done. It could be productive, but let's make sure that we are enjoying ourselves, enjoying one another's company. Most people like Australians. Um, in fact, some research shows that the best chair of an international team is an Australian because he's quite direct and he can deal with issues without being afraid of the conflict, but he's also relaxed and kind of a warm guy. So Australians are good like that. Uh, if you want to upset an Australian, pull rank on him. He'll hate that. They hate that. Okay. And so um, if you are, these are of course caricatures and by no means am I trying to offend anybody if, if that's you. Um, but they, they illustrate that different cultures are going for different things. A successful team meeting will look different. And if you've got all these guys in your team, you're very unlikely to have a successful team meeting where everybody feels happy. Yeah. And so those are some of the, the cultural challenges to building a, a multicultural team. If you're building an international team, what you do need in the mix are some cross-cultural glue people. So uh, there's a story from uh, the 1990s, a British company uh, took on a big engineering project in the Libyan desert. It was a really tough environment out in the middle of nowhere. And um, they sent uh, engineers to do this job. So there were two English, one German, one Dutch, one American, and an Italian. Now, everyone on the team, apart from the Italian, had a real specialism. They were an expert engineer in their area. Um, no one could figure out why the Italian was, was on the team at all. Um, he didn't seem to have a specialism. But it was a really tough environment. You know, they, they were in the middle of nowhere. When they had their day off, there wasn't really anything to do. They were there for months and months in the desert. It was a very kind of intense team environment. But at the end, it was really successful. And when they did the post-mortem analysis on the project to work out why it had been so successful, it turned out that everybody said the most important team member had been the Italian guy who had no specialism. And when they pressed it, they, everyone else just said, well, he, when everyone was being really stressed out, he would cook us all Italian food. He'd go and find somewhere to buy booze from. Uh, he'd keep, kind of keep us up to date with the news. He'd tell jokes. He was just a warm, glue kind of character. And he really made it work amongst all these other intense personalities. And so if there's any kind of piece of wisdom there and you're building a, a multicultural team, Actually, that kind of gift in the mix, that kind of warm, humorous, relationship-managing type personality is absolutely huge, okay? Um, I think of it as, in terms of a leadership style, it's like when Jesus turned the water into wine in John chapter 2 at the wedding in Cana. And we wouldn't even think of that as a leadership action uh, because he saves the whole wedding he saves the face of the groom. You know, he kind of rescues this from this kind of crisis, potentially shameful situation, turns it all around. But it's secret. Nobody even knows that Jesus has done that. And actually, that kind of invisible leadership that, you know, rather than the big charismatic casting vision type of leader, but actually hey, managing relationships and making sure that the team wins and that the thing happens is, is a hugely important type of leadership and type of gift in these kind of teams. Um, we've often found that actually ladies, our sisters, are really good in multicultural teams, probably better than men, um, just because they're good at reading all the kind of nonverbal cues and, and all the kind of body language stuff and the vibes that are going on. And if, if we made any mistake in church planning, it was jumping too quickly to a team that just had men because we wanted to get to kind of male elders. And you lose the kind of the value that the ladies add in that multicultural environment as kind of glue people and people that are really good at helping to manage a lot of different kinds of cultural relationships. The other kind of people that are really useful in multicultural teams, just on this kind of third area of cultural difference, are multilingual people. 
See, people that can speak more than one language uh, can kind of empathize in more than one direction and, and are just able to, because language opens up worldviews to you and opens up the way that people think. And so people that speak more than one language are often really good and even good as the kind of chair of these multicultural environments. I remember one uh, context I was in, which was there was a group of Turkish guys and Armenian guys around the table in the Middle East. And the guy that hosted the meeting, he speaks five languages. And, and so it just gave him the ability to empathize in lots of different directions and hold together what could otherwise have been a very fractious meeting. And multicultural people are more common than you'd think. You know, in the UK, we think, oh man, if I could learn one, one other language, I'd be doing well. But the, you know, the English are extraordinary like that in their lack of ability to learn languages. But many other people uh, speak. So Rada, who's hosting tonight, who we'll go back to in a minute, she speaks five or six. We were just trying to work out how many exactly she speaks. And lots of people do speak a lot of languages. And if you can find someone like that for your international team, they will just help you with multi-directional empathy and connecting and helping to understand a lot of other people. And it's really important. Uh, the best book on this subject, just on the kind of cultural diversity thing, is Richard Lewis, When Teams Collide. And it's not a Christian book. It's a, it's a kind of workplace book. He's an international business consultant. But it's, it's genius, really, on just understanding and opening out this kind of cameo that I've just given you of the way that different people in different cultures respond in different ways to team. And he says this about a kind of chair or leadership role for a multicultural team. Uh, I'm just going to read this quote from Lewis. Multilingual chairs are likely to be understanding, tolerant of other worldviews, broad-minded and charismatic. One might call them international psychologists. Uh, such leaders are able to think in multidimensional terms and deal successfully with ambiguities. And so often they can just handle a lot of gray. You know, one of the big things about the kind of cross-cultural skill set or cross-cultural gifts is an ability to handle a lot of gray or a lot of ambiguity. And that is essential in handling life in a cross-cultural team. So we've, we've touched on three so far. We've talked about power difference, we've talked about language difference, and then we spent slightly longer because it's more interesting on cultural difference or cultural preferences. The fourth and final area of difference that I wanted to touch on tonight is this area of honour. So honour difference. You know, to, to lead a team well, you have to understand that, that different people from different cultures respond to or desire or need or are motivated by honour in different ways. Um, and so one of the questions you've got to ask is, in this team, what makes a person worthy of respect? What makes a person worthy of honor? Why would we listen to someone? Um, why would they be included in the team? And for some, you know, maybe in an English, more sort of task-oriented culture, it would be success. Or we listen to him because he's successful. He's done this, you know, he's got track record in this. He's built something. He's produced something before. He's got something to say. Um in our kind of Christian context, if you took that, that success thing in, you might talk about gift, you know. So, oh, we, we think he's gifted in this area. We think he's got a skill set in this area. And so we'll listen to him. He's respected. He knows what he's talking about, yeah? Um, but that's not true everywhere. So in many cultures, uh, the thing that entitles people to respect or honor would be age. And you can't get around that. And so it would be almost impossible to have an older Japanese man on your team and you're younger than him and you're the leader and you expect him to follow you or respect you, it would be almost miraculous um, because uh, age and honor or leadership or respect are so tightly pinned together and you can't get around that. And you, that's, not, that's not wrong. It's not bad. It's just different. And you'd have to figure out how to lead in that context. Um, for some people, it would be about position, wouldn't it? Title, seniority, uh, hierarchy, Again, that's not bad. It's not wrong. It's just different. Uh, in Pakistan, uh, the, the apostolic guy that leads our movement of churches there is getting older. And his son is beginning to take on a whole lot of responsibility. And no one there is going, oh, what qualifies him to do it? He's just his son. It's nepotism. People are going, no, no, we know his dad. We trust his dad. We trust the son. It makes sense that he would fill that position. It's a family thing. Uh, whereas English people might be going, what's the son built? What's his track record? What's his, what's his gift? Has he proven himself? And you think, no, it's to do with his family and his position. Um, 
in some contexts, it would be rhetoric. So many of my friends in Turkey, the thing that really makes you uh, earn your place in a team environment is your ability to argue and your ability to speak. And um, many Turkish conversations, it's like I was with a, a friend last week in Turkey and we were talking about this. It's like a football match and you quote little proverbs or little pithy sayings and every time you you say something really pithy that doesn't get a comeback, it's like you scored a goal and then at the end you add up the score and you see who won. So, you know, I'll take my villages up the mountain and come down with no goats. Really? Well, I'll scratch my long ears at you and stroke my beard. Oh, yes. Well, my mother used to tell me that when milk goes sour, then it doesn't turn green. You know, and they're just kind of bouncy problems. You're sitting there going, bang, bang, what's going on? What is this? And there's just a kind of uh, a rhetorical competition going on. But those who can speak well and win in these kind of contests are worthy of honor. Uh, on the whole thing of honor, you need to think about how is honor shown? So some cultures are very direct very confrontational. You know, Americans lay it all out there. There's no beating around the bush. It's direct. It's honest. This is what I think. This is what I say. In some cultures, that's anathema. Some cultures are very indirect in the way that they would communicate or confront people. Um, last week, uh, quite a senior Turkish leader um, spoke to me and um uh, he basically said something in this team meeting that we were never going to do. It was a ridiculous idea, really, and it's fine. But we were never just going to say to him in the meeting, nope, that's a bad idea, we're not going to do that. We just said, yes, brother, of course, brother. You know, and we go away. He knows we're never going to do it, we know, but we haven't, we haven't caused him to lose face. We haven't shamed him. And um, there's something about that of showing honour, even if you know you're not going to do it, you just wouldn't ever directly confront and so different cultures are different in that way and you need to handle things in that way. And finally, what needs to be understood is that uh, in some contexts, honour is less about the honour of the individual and more about the honour of the group. It's more about the team winning. So my wife was working as a teacher in a, in a school in the Middle East and she was very, very good at her job, very creative, very skilled, very talented. But one day the headmistress pulls her aside and says to her, I just need to ask you to tone it down, please. You're too good. Can you be a little bit less good at your job, please? And she was really confused. And she said, hang on, you're asking me to not do so well? And the boss said, yes, because you're making the rest of us look bad. And you think in the West, we're so used to individual excellence and like be as the best that you can be. But in many cultures, actually, it's better if the individuals can tone it down as long as the team together looks like they win. So one Japanese uh, sociologist said, actually, Japan will never produce a charismatic leader. They shouldn't. We don't care about individual charismatic leaders. We care about doing well together as a, as a group. It's called the, the tall poppy syndrome. When one poppy is too tall, taller than all the others, it looks ugly. And you need to cut it down because uniformity is our highest value. And you could even say that the Bible story, and I'll finish with this, but the Bible story of Peter walking on the water is a little bit like that. In the West, we always talk about it as this kind of heroic moment, you know. Everybody else stayed in the boat, but Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and showed how awesome he was. But actually... It's not told as a positive story. Jesus rebukes him, doesn't praise him, tells him to get back in the boat where he belongs with everybody else. And Peter's whole life story is um, constantly trying to be better than everybody else. And sometimes you just need to tone it down. And so if you take that kind of whole idea of honor and put it into your uh, multicultural team, it can be a real challenge to go, okay, well then how do we make a team where we honor difference, we respect one another, and what we really care about is this church getting planted or this task getting achieved in a way that involves everybody's different kind of strengths. So we've looked at four areas of difference, the, the, the whole thing of power difference, language difference, cultural or preference difference, and then honor difference. And we're going to finish there. I'll just uh, leave you really with the one of the big challenges, I think, in the Christian world is 
we like things to be the way that we know or the way that we believe is right. And uh, it, you can call it heterophobia, if you like. We're heterophobic. We don't like difference or we're suspicious of things happening in another way. So even now I talk about, you know, this leader's son becoming the leader or hierarchy. And you think, no, that's not right. That's wrong. That's not what Christian leadership should be like. And I think, well, don't, don't be confused between the difference between Christian leadership and Western leadership. And, you know, um, we need to constantly be learning from other cultures and figuring out that it's not always wrong. It's just different. So don't be heterophobic. Do you have any practical advice on leading a church plant in a Western city where the majority expect meetings to fight culturally, but the team members from Eastern African backgrounds want seats as an important matter? As we know, the Westerners, you know, seem to think that being late is, is, a, is a sign of leadership weakness. How do you get the balance between those who want to be punctual all on the clock and those who think, hey, we're in a meeting, let's talk a bit and then we'll get to the business. Yes, yeah, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? Because you've got to decide which order your values are. So we would all hold that community is important and we would all hold that having the meeting happen is important. But the, the challenge is to work out which one of those is more important. Uh, so in some contexts, the meeting doesn't start until everybody's turned up because the important thing is we're all there together. But, you know, often in a Western context, the higher value is, hey, we, um, we're doing the meeting. The, the important thing is the task and the people are, um, you know, incidental. They can turn up in their time. And it's difficult because if you're in the West, then you are more likely to be contextually Western um, but my argument would always be in Christianity, it's not the strong who should change. It's, it's not the weak who should change. It's the strong. And so in, in, you know, in, in Corinthians, Paul is arguing, Hey, you, you people who are strong of faith, you should change. Don't expect the weak to change. And, you know, even, uh, our father God knew that we couldn't change and come to him. So he changed and came to us. And so if you applied that in your context, then you go, well, actually, in your context, who are the strong and who are the weak? And maybe the strong should change. And so if you say, hey, well, the weak, the weak are the people that are arriving late all the time. And the, if the strong change, then our time scale will always slide and we'll never start the meeting on time. Then, you know, maybe, maybe that's what happened. Maybe it needs to happen for a season. Um, but I would always say that you need to go to where people are and try and um, try and make church life accessible not just accessible by having a website and having a wheelchair ramp but accessible culturally and emotionally uh, to all the people that you're trying to reach yeah it was very interesting about talking about power difference and obviously i guess depending where you are in the world really it depends who is going to be more powerful and who, who isn't so when someone is taking a step back or seemingly taking a step back because of this power difference, how could you draw them out and, and, and empower them? Can you give an example just you know, to help to empower leaders? Yeah. Um, so I think uh, honouring people is huge. So, you know, in our context, I think we often had guys that because they were new believers – they felt quite intimidated to be invited into the leadership context. Said, what have I got to contribute? You guys are from a Christian country and you're Christian families and, you know, and we're just kind of brand new Christians. And I think so partly there's constantly a, an encouragement, a, a drawing out, uh, an honouring of people. Um, but but the, the flip side of that is there's a kind of humbling of yourself and an opening up of your own Vulnerability. So if you think about it as a seesaw, you know, the Luke 151 says that, you know, God brings down the mighty and raises up the humble. And there's something about the gospel that actually does both of those things. And so part of lifting people up is, is in a way putting yourself down, you know, trying to redress this power balance from West to East that's in the world, if you like. So we would often, um, be extremely open about our vulnerabilities 
with guys that we're wanting to bring through into leadership and be extremely open about our mess and our pain. Um, because I think part of lifting other people up is humbling yourself, if that, if that makes sense at all. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's just interesting, again, in, in that context about being vulnerable and being honest. I think one of my biggest culture shocks being in England was that I see the people were dishonest in church because you would ask them something and they would just go around and do it. And then, you know, in time I understood, you no, know, actually that's not true. It's just they don't want to be vulnerable. They don't want to say, being from Mediterranean, for me, everything's going to sleep. So if someone asks you, how are you doing? You say, you're really good. And they're a bit, you know, they're a bit shocked. <laughs> but um, it's, it's really important, isn't it, to actually know who you're working with. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you're working with Mediterranean or a really warm culture, um, then people, you know, I, I think I think that when we talk about this thing of emotional intelligence, Mediterraneans for example, have very high emotional intelligence. They can read your your face, your eyes, your hand actions, and so they can even tell if you're lying or fobbing them off. Or uh, you know, I think so. You can with with some of these kind of more physical cultures um that, that are very voice tone and body language and face and hands are very important people can tell whether you're being honest or not uh, it's not just about your words it's how you say it it's funny i'd encourage any English person that's trying to operate multiculturally one of the things you've really got to work on is your emotional openness and emotional honesty because as Rada is saying that can be quite difficult for English people um, but in some cultures it's just a given it's absolutely assumed and if you don't have that then you don't have any relationship at all on what are we doing here so yeah absolutely yeah brilliant and um, how do you challenge people of a different culture in a way to help them grow without seeming like you're imposing your own culture onto them because that could be a challenge as well, couldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, that is absolutely a huge challenge. Um, if, if you look at how Jesus did it, a lot of the time Jesus would tell a story, for example, a parable, but then he'd leave the end open and he wouldn't actually, you know, so the, the older brother in the prodigal son, did he repent or didn't he? Well, we don't know. Um, and lots of Jesus' stories like that. He just he, he tells a story, but he leaves the end open uh, for people to make their own response. And so there are ways of challenging people without shaming them. And in you know, in a, so Nathan, who had to come to King David and tell him that he'd had his thing with Bathsheba, you know, he tells a story, doesn't he? It's a kind of indirect thing. And and so there are ways of challenging people so that they can respond and grow without losing face. Uh, often, and this happens a lot cross-culturally, is the Westerner comes in and he's got the local leader that he's working with and he's, you know, discipling this guy, but then that guy does something wrong or falls into sin, which will happen. Uh, yeah. Westerner rebukes him uh, and then that just breaks the relationship because the guy's lost face, he can never kind of recover it again and you've broken the relationship. And so you've got to go, hey, my value on this relationship and on local guys coming through in this church and local responsibility is, is a higher value than almost anything else for me. Mm, really interesting. And um, if you're leading in a, in a different culture from your own and you are in minority, how easy is to fully adapt in your culture? In a new culture? And how easy is to change from what, you, what you've been what's up you know in sorry it just cut out can can you just sorry. read that one again so if you're leading in a different culture from your own and you are in a minority how easy is it for you to fully adapt in that new culture yeah okay so we encourage people to work really hard to enter the culture. So for us, we encourage people to, to work really hard at learning language. Uh, often when we'll send a team, we'll say, hey, you don't plant for the first couple of years. You just study language and really try and enter as deeply as you can. 
Um, different people will do it different ways, depending on their family capacity and, you know, all, all the rest of it, really. Um, no one ever completely enters a culture and completely goes native, if you like. And if they did, that might even be immoral. Um, but people can, people can become a, a trusted guest. Now, one of the things that we often talk about is it, it, it's very difficult for a guest to ever criticize a host. Um, and maybe they never should, you know, and, and you have to earn the, the right. You have to be legitimized by the host and the person that has the power to legitimize you is the host, um, really. And, but of, of course, people can enter cultures quite deeply and earn a certain place of respect and earn the, the right to speak. And we would say that if you're planting uh, cross-culturally, then you've really got to do that as well as you can, as deeply as you can. Um, you know, when Jesus came to the earth, he spent 30 years learning, being around people, working as a carpenter, and then only only after that 30 years, he spent three years talking. And that 30 years learning made his three years talking very effective. Um, but you've got to make the effort to enter. We uh, Last time when we had you as a, as a guest, um, we spoke quite a lot about um, having to actually listen a lot to the culture that you're in and actually listening to the questions that the culture is, that, that where you are, that what what they're asking so without just presuming that you know all the answers listen to questions first and it just you know and we talked about how important is is the language of your kind of host culture is could you just if you don't mind just reiterate that once again really how important is the language and how important is we don't come you know into new culture with all the answers and this is how we do it because Hey, we are English or Western or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. I think, so, you know, we started with that verse from the, the church plant in Antioch. And, you know, the whole issue of like the book of Galatians, the whole argument there is that people came from Jerusalem to Antioch and said, hey, this is how we do it in Jerusalem. You should do that here. And Paul's saying, no, it's not, that's, this isn't Jerusalem. This is Antioch. Um, and so one of the big sins, really, is that we go to places and we say, this is how we do it. You know, this is how we do it in London. And even tonight, when we're talking about team, you know, that's really important because you'll, you will read books that say this is how you should do your team or this is what a leader is or this is what you should. And you think, well, no, but that book was written in America and this isn't America. And so, you know, I think. The big challenge for Christians is to understand that everyone has their Christianity mixed with their culture. And so, you know, I can go, oh, this is what a Christian leader looks like. But to what extent am I looking at it as an English person? And to what extent am I looking at it as a Christian? And to be able to de-Westernize your Christianity is a beautiful thing. It's an extremely difficult thing. But yeah, I'd say it's almost one of the greatest sins is to turn up in another country and say, well, this is what it has to look like and this is what the church has to look like. And so tonight when we're talking about uh, multicultural teams, that's where I get passionate a little bit sometimes because I think I really worry that people are trying to squeeze people into their model of what leadership has to look like and it's just going to break people because they're not wired that way you know you can't force a turkish person to follow an agenda and it's just not going to happen uh you can't force a swedish person into a hierarchy it's not going to happen um but i think you know it, it, you have to respect people's culture god gave them their cultures they're a gift from god and they're holy and valuable and they have to be honored yeah. Yeah. So, so in in your multicultural team, um, how should how can you do it? What can you do to kind of to aim for some middle ground, or is there a middle ground that you can aim aim for? Something that works for majority that you know that sometimes it fits the place where you are actually you know planting and it's just is is there something that you can do that you can incorporate everyone's 
preferences. I mean, it sounds impossible, doesn't it? And in the, in the purest sense, it probably is. And if you've got lots of different people in the team from lots of different cultures who've all got different preferences, you have to work out what is the controlling value system here or what is the, you know, it, is our highest thing going to be that we just eat together all the time or is it going to be that we're trying to actually achieve something and it's task or, you know, so what is our kind of highest value? And that has to be, I suppose, the mission, isn't it? The thing that brought you together as a team is whatever your mission is, you know, to plant this church, to reach these people, to get to get to this place. And so the, the, the problem is what usually happens is the controlling value system in the team is the leader. So it's like, well, I'm task-oriented, so everybody has to be task-oriented. Or, you know, I... I like to talk for five hours, so that's the kind of thing we're going to... And I think the thing to try and get away from is the controlling value system being you and being, hey, if we're all here and we're all different and we're wired different ways, but we're all going for a common vision, then then that's the thing that's, that holds us together and that should compel us. Mm. Yeah. My, my favourite bit is, is about cultural preferences and different teams and, uh, you know, how different nationalities for representatives kind of, um, can work together and glue people are very very interesting and we have a question that, that you know when you have Italian you know in, in, as in, in your story how can you actually in your team identify those people are, are they likely to be somewhere in the background and what, what you have to look for or do they just come to the surface and kind of then you can pick them so how do you figure out this is someone that I want in the team? Who, who would be your glue person? Yeah. I, it's interesting because often what we're looking for, in, in, you know, so it's the leadership team because we're planning a church, yeah? So often you're looking for a leaders to be in your leadership team. But it depends what you, how you define leader. And often people define them as, um, you know, high functioning or charismatic or able to get something done or, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I, I just want to argue that leader is a broader thing than that. I think often what you're looking for is faithfulness. Um, but even more than that, often, I think in this kind of team, there has to be people who you see them around the place, constantly connecting with people. You can see their physicality. You can see their warmth. You can see that they are um, people who make people feel comfortable. You know, it's almost what you'd call the hospitality gift. They're, they're hospitable. They make people feel at home. Um, heard a great story. A friend of ours is working in a closed Muslim country, and um, he's Russian. And he was uh, constantly trying to um, kind of raise leaders there. And he kept having these kind of charismatic guys who were really, you know, strong in the word and the spirit, and they just wouldn't sustain it. It wasn't, it wasn't a great context. And so he asked the churches in Russia and said, oh, please, can you send me some church planters to help with this? And um, the, the churches in Russia said, oh, we can't send you any kind of good leaders, but we can send you all these recovering drug addicts from our rehab. <laughs> so the guy was like, okay, I'll take whatever I can get. And they came down and he said they were actually, they were just the most solid, most faithful, most kind of reliable people to build with um, because they were relationally kind of warm and connectors. And so it wasn't the type of people he was looking for, but actually they were perfect for his mix. And I think often it can be like that, you know, we're all dreaming that we see out of our church plant, the next apostle kind of emerge or the next big gift. But actually, particularly when you're planting a church, churches are planted on hospitality, on relationships, on warmth, on acceptance, on making people feel at home. And so why shouldn't you recognize those kind of gifts and those kind of skills as almost the most important skills? I would argue that those are the leaders and that those are the elders in a church planting context. Yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, we were talking about, uh, you know, when we think about Christianity and we as a people, we're always kind of, we mix our Christianity together with, with our culture, but loads of people don't realise that. And what are the sort of things that we can actually do to help them realise it and, and, you know, kind of explain, well, actually, Bible wasn't written for the Westerners and those sorts of things. Yeah, I think um, 
uh, it's always good to um, to talk to people from other cultures and to ask them lots of questions. And so I think a lot of people travel to teach. You know, I'm going to go on this trip because I'm going to lead a seminar. I'd encourage people to travel to listen instead of traveling to teach. You know, go and visit another church and just find out what they do. Spend the weekend with Rada in Germany, finding out what she does, not trying to bring some ministry. Um, so I think it's good to travel to learn. Um, I also think it's good to read books. If you look at your bookshelf, are they all written by English and American people? You know, there's lots of books out there that are written by people from other countries. And um, it's good to read stuff written by other people as well. So I'd say travel to learn, get hold of people from other cultures whenever you get the chance and just ask them questions, learn from them, seek see to understand. And don't be slow to judge and slow to go, oh, that's just wrong. Uh, and, and rather go, oh, that's different, you know. Yeah, that's really good. Well, since uh, um, most people that actually would be listening to, to us will be British, uh, I think it's, it's just fair to ask some um, some question about British culture and multiculturality and things. So do you think that in British churches in multicultural cultural cities, we should be really intentional in having multicultural leadership teams, even if other cultures are in min minority in those churches? Yes, I do. And I'll tell you why. Um, because uh, I believe that one of the things that Christians are supposed to do is reach the unreached. And if it's a multicultural city in Britain, like London or Birmingham or Leicester or Manchester or any of these places, then there's going to be unreached people in your city. So there's going to be Pakistanis, there's going to be Sri Lankans, there's going to be Somalis. Um, And the church needs to figure out how to reach those people. And if your church is culturally very, very English, um, then it's going to be very difficult for those kind of people to access your church. And so one of the values of bringing through a kind of spirit of multiculturalness or bringing through leaders from other contexts is as a church becomes less English and more multicultural, it just becomes more automatically hospitable for other people. So if a Somali walks into your meeting on a Sunday, he's going to look around. He might not see any other Somalis there, but he will see, oh, wow, there's there's Indians here. There's people from other places. You know, oh, wow, they appreciate difference here. And that's absolutely huge. If he walks in and he only sees white people, and then it's going to be much harder for him to adjust. And so for the sake of reaching the unreached in our cities, we have to develop a more multicultural uh, approach to church life. We really do. That's really interesting. And in a, in a kind of inner city church, what kind of changes would you make in order to draw in various cultures? Um, Okay, so I think there's a couple of things. Um, there, is a, there is a visible diversity thing. So if people come in and everyone on the stage or, you know, hosting, preaching, band, if they're all just white, then immediately people will notice that and think about that. And so I think that, you, you know, you can work on your visible diversity. Um, and... That's not a cop-out. It's actually really important. It's, I think it's part of hospitality. It's part of making people feel at home. Um, I think in preaching, uh, what happens is, and it's interesting because I'm in England at the moment and I get around a lot of churches and I get to see this, um, the, the gospel in England is very narrow, really, uh, to kind of forgiveness for sin. Uh, you know, forgiveness because I'm guilty because of my sin. And that's a part of the gospel, but the biblical gospel is actually a lot broader than that. And people from other cultures who come into your church might not be asking the question, what do I do with my guilt? If, if there's Muslims that come into your church, that won't be the question that they're asking. The question they'll be asking is, how do I get rid of my shame? And so you need, a, you need to be preaching a gospel that's using a broader language, really, than just... Uh, forgiveness for sin and I think a lot of our songs are quite narrow and a lot of our uh, gospel vocabulary is actually quite narrow and the gospel is a lot bigger than that. you know in the bible 
um, shame language is doubly present than guilt language. So it's a bigger deal in the Bible. Um, I was going to say one more thing there. The other thing is the gospel in the UK is very individualistic. So it's me and my father. It's, you know, Jesus never taught us that. When he taught us to pray, he taught us our father, <laughs> not my father. And so, uh, and, and actually that can be extremely unattractive to people from communalistic cultures. Uh, you know, uh, in the Bible, you often see, be saved, you and your whole household. And we often see whole families coming to faith in the Muslim world. That would be quite normal for us. Even this last week in Turkey, I saw some baptisms. It's whole families getting baptized together. It's often that way. Um, and so I think we need to find ways of, you know, we have individual membership in churches. Why don't you have family membership? We have um, there's so many things that actually, if you thought more communalistically, it might open up more cultural access for your church. Interesting. So I, I assume that loads of people who will be watching this would be in some kind of a leadership position. Could you just recommend some material that they can actually broaden, that we can broaden our kind of sense of, well, it's not just, you know, us and our Western mindset. And ha you know, do, do on top of your head, sorry if I put you on a spot, yes. do you have no, anything fine. that you can... So the, yeah, the, the best introductory resource to, to that subject, <laughs> that subject, is Jason George's The 3D Gospel. And it basically takes the understanding that there were broadly three different kinds of culture, guilt-based, shame-based, and fear-based. And how do you preach the gospel in a way that meets all of those people's needs and answers their question? And then a, a kind of a, a much bigger book, but written for Westerners on this subject, is Walter Mishka, The Global Gospel. And again, it just, it just argues that in the 21st century and in our multicultural cities in the UK, you cannot be ignorant of the subject of shame and the reality of the power of that in lots of people's lives and the ability to preach a gospel that um, answers people's question, how do I get rid of my shame? And just the last question, and it's to do with, the, with, the, with your last point about honour and you know, all that honor, shame, cultures, and, and this one is about actually humility. What Do you see the different ways that humility is expressed in different cultures? Because sometimes, you know, humility is actually, you know, humility is knowing who you are before God, isn't it? It's not thinking, you know, that you are a poor person, but actually knowing who you are and being humble about it. How is it expressed across, across the different cultures yeah i mean i guess different cultures would express it different ways i think if you took a binary thing of east and west mm -hmm. so western world and the eastern world if you like um often uh easterners you know muslim they'll they'll use inshallah at the end of every sentence the wedding is on the third of june inshallah i'll come and see you next week inshallah yeah and we think oh they're so non-committal and disorganized why can't they just make a decision but actually, it's humility. And actually, if you read James chapter 4, James tells us to do exactly that. He says, don't boast about what you're going to do next week. How do you know you might be dead next week? And so if an Easterner hears a Westerner talking, and we say the wedding is on the 3rd of June, or I'm coming to your house next week, they say, well, you're arrogant. How do you know <laughs> anything could happen to you? And so because we're used to a, such a degree of confidence and security in the West, our culture communicates really arrogantly to other cultures. And so I would say that Westerners need to work harder than anybody in the world at cultivating humility. Um, and it's not just, oh, you just have to say, if God wills at the end of every sentence, you know, I think we come from a powerful part of the world, if you like. And so we have to work extra hard at humbling, at becoming like a servant, uh, uh, going to other places in order to genuinely serve people and not just bring our agenda. And so I don't, you know, different cultures express humility different ways to answer your question. That's a, it's a difficult one. Uh, but I would say that we have a responsibility to work extra hard at demonstrating humility if we're going to be genuine carriers of the gospel.
Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And just a reminder, you can find the full notes on everything that Andy had to say at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org slash episode 84. See you next time.